The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. So Brianna Parkins and Dave Hanrat here are with us for the week trending. And let's start with something that's happened today, Brianna. Uh, tell us about the climate activists and their stunt at the National Gallery in London. They threw soup on Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers, which is the weirdest and possibly bizarrest way of protesting climate change. Actually, against uh, using oil, they want to move away from from oil based energy. But what did Vincent do to you? Like, was he part of big oil? No. And also, the painting's protected by glass, so it's quite a febrile, so very very weak, you know, limp protest. And all you have to do is have a cleaner come by and put some Windex on it and wipe it off. Like, didn't actually destroy the painting. It was just sort of fell a bit short and was just a bit weird odd. But so as you could say Dave, it means that we're talking about global warming and climate action that a stunt like this gets the results they're wanting for and it gets us talking about these issues. Yeah, precisely the point. And also, there's probably a little bit of perception as reality thinking about this as well, because I saw a video of this on Twitter earlier on, and it does look to the untrained eye that they have damaged the paintings. And I should say as well, there's an incredible, like, I would encourage people to go and seek out the video because when when they when they throw it on, there's this incredible slop sound. Like, it's one of the most satisfying things I've ever heard in my life. And then afterwards, as the students kind of, you know, maintain their dignified pose, you hear a British security guard or I guess a museum attendant call for security in the most sing-song yeah. like upper-class British kind of way uh, it, it really like it's this cognitive dissonance that, that occurs throughout it that like it is comical but again as you say uh, we're talking about it and like, it is important and like but are we actually, do but are know? we actually talking about climate action which is something we talk about every week in this program with John Givens are we talking about idiots deciding that they want to throw tins of soup at a painting which doesn't even do damage to the painting I should say it's interesting because you used the word stunt a couple of times and now you're using the word idiot so like, I mean, I, like, I've been like, do you want to come down <laughs> on the youth of today Matt and people who are using creative expression I yes. mean, like, is it not itself a form so, of modern on, art what's creative about throwing a tin of paint at or tin of soup, sorry, <laughs> at a painting which is a wonderful work of genuine creation. I'm not saying I want to see this happen necessarily, but I think you could make the point that in the modern art circle, this is disruption, and there, there's got to be someone somewhere looking at a marketing campaign out of this. These students are probably going to join, you know, the corporate world oh, from, Dave, from the you back don't of this. you using that buzzer, disruption, <laughs> and talking about it being a marketing campaign. Brianna, <laughs> this is what happens when you give young people too much self-esteem. I've been saying it for years. All those participation trophies. You know, this is but it's quite you two can be an artist at the <laughs> National Gallery if you come along with a tin of soup, soup and throw it over a painting, that makes you an artist. And I like look, I want to be on the hip young activist side, I really do, but I'm an old crank. And she kind of goes on and <laughs> saying, like, this is about the poor families that I can't afford, you know, heating and having to eat soup in winter. And I was like, yeah, that is true, but she's saying it in a very, very posh accent, yeah. Uh, well, you know, again, I mean, like, like the, the dangerous game though, because again, like, like, the, like, are you being classes there, like, like. That's what somebody will throw at you if you dare suggest that as well. But also to go back to what you were saying there, man. I mean, like you know, like Tracy Emmons' messy bed was it like like all those years ago? I, I've never been a fan of modern art. I I feel like it's a little bit kind of like. Have you ever been in the taste of modern? No, modern? never. It is wonderful. Is it wonderful? Yeah. It is. Would your experience be enhanced if a rogue student or two <laughs> came in with a can of bachelor soup and just started throwing it about the place, Jack Nicholson and Batman style? I th- I think I'd have a good time watching that. I mean, it was it kind of the way she delivered it was sort of a bad spoken word open mic night at a university, and yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. "Good, <laughs> like, good for you for trying, doll. Like, good for effort there, but maybe just like that was not way 
that wasn't really an impactful, you know. Brianna, I believe you're a fan of Van Gogh <laughs> as well, or Van Gogh, Van Gogh. I don't know. Her. Properly. I I'm don't know. literally off the plane from Amsterdam yesterday, and I took my parents. My parents are visiting Ireland. It's their first time they've been able to visit me thanks to the pandemic since I've moved. And I was like, look, I'm going to take them to, to Europe. My parents, you know, very working class. We never had any money to go anywhere, never on a plane, never mind Europe. So they're finally going to do this in their 60s, and I took them to Amsterdam. And my mum's chief complaint was A, that there was too many bikes. Oh, yeah. In Amsterdam. <laughs> and two, Vincent van Gogh, like, just a bunch of just a bunch of paint on a canvas. Just too much globs, globby paint. I mean, like, have they Fair seen... Fair enough. Have they seen That's the hard criticism, I suppose, isn't <laughs> it? <laughs> so, yeah, I was really glad I spent time and money. And what about the cannabis cafes? Uh, so my mum, <laughs> she was like, oh, we should get some we should get some gummies and some edibles. And dad's like, absolutely not. And then she stood out in front of um, a sex shop that was selling like all kinds of implements. And she's like, now what's this one here? And Stephen, come and have a look. My dad wants to melt into the ground. His eyes are like, he can't look above anyone's Hang on, knees. what about you though? It's usually the, the child <laughs> of the parents who is more embarrassed by that. I, uh, I've ceased being embarrassed by my parents. I'm just like, this this is all column material. This is all stuff that later on I can use for a book. This is trauma, but I'll make it funny. And I just let them go and do their own thing. My parents are very funny, funny people, and I just love being around them. You mentioned Tracy Emma. What about Damien Hurst and his NFTs? You better explain. We have briefly touched it before with Andy O'Donoghue, but for those who missed it, uh, NFTs in the art world. Yeah, the non-fungible tokens that continue to be a thing, despite the fact that, like, as far as I'm aware, like the value of NFTs has gone down significantly in recent times. Uh, I live with someone who's a big NFT guy, you know, for my sins, and ultimately uh, he's telling me it's a bad, it's a, it's a bad place to be right now. So maybe that's why this is happening. Sorry, can I suggest you that the value has always been pretty meaningless? It's the price of them has gone down. They were probably worthless to start. Oh, it's a scam. I mean, we know this. We saw like you know clips of you know celebrities on Jimmy Fallon and so on, just like you know Matt Damon in an ad campaign hawking this, and it's really really bad for the environment. And it's also you know for people who don't know, it's essentially like a carbon copy of a thing. You know, like you might as well just give someone like a screenshot and be like, there you go, give me ten million or whatever. Uh, but it, the the debate rumbles on. So Damien Hurst is burning his own art after selling his NFTs, which is a very very Damien Hurst thing to do, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's says, this is my problem with modern art. You know, I've never understood it because I'm of the opinion that people in a certain social circle can say, that's modern art. And everyone's like, yes, it is. Congratulations. This is an incredible statement. I've never understood it. So maybe I'm the ignorant one here. But essentially, yeah, he's been, um, people who've bought pieces from his latest collection can choose the physical artwork or the NFT representing it. But he is burning his own works and asked, you know, what, what, how do you feel about this, Damien? He said, it feels good, better than I expected, which is a very privileged thing to say. But, Brianna, there's a certain logic to that as well, though, is that he is creating value in the NFT by burning the original. I mean, value in art is rarity. Like, you own one of that painting. You own the original or you own the original sketch. And sure, there might be copies made of it, but you own the original. And that's where, you know, the millions of dollars of price tags comes in. And, and yeah, that's rarity. There's nothing wrong with thing. having limited edition prints. There's nothing wrong. If that's what you could afford. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I'm saying is having the original and having that one thing. So there is, he's kind of, you know, bringing his old customers with his new customers. And if you look at the 10,000 works that he sold, most of them bought, a, like, their hard copies, the original art. <laughs> works, whatever Damien Hirst, he does paintings, but, and then sort of 4,851 people bought the NFTs, and they're the works that he burnt, and each piece went for around two grand, uh, 1,800, sorry, pounds, so you're looking at nearly 873,000 pounds in the bank for him burning those artworks. I mean, Damien Hirst, he's been described as the bad boy of modern art for like 
20 years now, so he's just like the odd old, old man of modern art now. And a brilliant capitalist by the side oh, of it as the well. the Crystal Skull, he, you know, he's always done these things. He put a, a shark in formaldehyde, he did the Crystal Skull. And I love the Young British Artist Movement. I do love Tracy Ammon. Um, but I'm like, look, if people are willing to pay that, like, let him at it. Yeah, there's a world for this. A world I do not understand, but it continues <laughs> to do incredibly well on it from a monetary point of view, it seems. Okay, there's a story from the North, Brianna, which really shocked me this week. It was the conviction of a sex offender, but the comments made by the judge in his rather light sentencing of this man. Tell us about this. I mean, yeah, it's always galling when you see remarks like this because we are really stunned when the people who are literal judges, people who sit in judgment of other people and crimes and sentences, make particularly bad judgment calls. It's just like there is no way in hell that you would ever consider this to be a good statement to make. And uh, Just tell us what the statement sorry, was. Sorry, it was in relation to, I'm getting too carried away already, it's, it's Judge Brian Sherrod. He thought it was appropriate to advise um, a, sec- a man who had pled guilty to sexual, sexually assaulting woman. He'd met her on a date, um, went home and sexually assaulted her, followed her home. He thought it was he appropriate. Followed, followed to her house, which house, I think yes, is also sorry. very relevant. So they were on a date in a hotel. Um, she sort of found him becoming what she described as, as paranoid and agitated. She said, no, I'm going to go home. He followed her to her house and sexually assaulted her in her house. Now, originally he was on rape charges. He pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of sexual assault, and that's what they're now talking about That when it goes to trial now, um, what the bail conditions are going to be. And Brian Sherrod thought the justice said it was that it was appropriate to say to this man to, to find a wife or partner, get a family and a home. Basically saying, find yourself a woman and sort yourself out. Implying that women are now responsible for the rehabilitation of the men who attack us. It's just horrific. Dave, he got a four and a half year prison sentence, but the bulk of it has already been served on remand and is a seven year sexual offences prevention order. But the judge declined to ban him from contacting women through the internet because, quote, he didn't want him excluded from normal life. Before then, I'm just going to repeat what Brianna said as well. The judge said, you're still a young man. There's nothing that will stop you moving on with your life in a more productive way. Finding work or finding a wife or partner, getting a family and home. The order imposed is the lightest touch I can afford. I mean, the word normal there in, in, in relation to the phrase normal life is doing a lot of heavy lifting. How do you even define this, especially in the wake of such a, a atrocious kind of situation. Uh, there was also like a sidebar of this where like he received support from a local priest, I believe, a chaplain, yes. Father Michael Bingham, who said um, the character image of the defendant being a menace to vulnerable women is one that I find hard to reconcile given his moral sensibilities, which again just raises uh, some shocking questions. I mean, if a court record, you know, lesser charges they may be, or suspended sentences, or non-molestation, as they're referred to here, if there's enough there in your ledger to suggest that you are a danger, if you're on record as a danger to women, which this person is, how can you possibly speculate about the moral character of someone who has shown that they can't actually follow the codes of society, and can't actually respect the people around them, and in fact are a danger to them? And this idea, as Brianna kind of adheres to, of settle down, uh, you know, and live a quote-unquote normal life. First of all, I mean, you're effectively imprisoning this hypothetical woman that he sh- that should essentially put him on the straight and narrow. It feels like a story from the 50s, the 40s, the 30s, the 20s, but it's a story in 2022, which just absolutely boggles the mind. Stay with us, Dave Hanratty and Brianna Parkins. More on the week trending when we come back. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Brianna Parkinson, Dave Hanratty are with us for the week trending. Dave, 
Alex Jones, one of the most reprehensible figures to have ever worked in American media, and that's saying something, has been ordered to pay nearly a billion dollars in damages in the Sandy Hook defamation trial. But before we get to the money, just remind people, please, of what he did, which was so reprehensible in relation to the mass murder at Sandy Hook. Yeah, Sandy Hook was a horrific massacre that took place in 2012 at a school in which lots of young children lost their lives thanks to a gunman. Uh, a familiar, unfortunately, American story. And Alex Jones spent a lot of time in the wake of this suggesting, well, not even suggesting, uh, stating outright, arguing that it wasn't real, that it was a hoax, that it was uh, a false flag operation and it was designed to kind of, I suppose, you know, like challenge the Second Amendment or make it harder for people in America to have their beloved guns and weaponry and this went on for a long time um, he was challenged obviously by a lot of people but legally it has taken this amount of time for him to be essentially usurped completely. Uh, this is the latest in a series of escalating uh, figures he's been thrown in terms of what he has to pay now but of course this figure of $965 million almost a billion dollars, it seems like an impossible figure, how is he possibly going to pay it this comes in the wake of him admitting I was wrong, it was real and so he has stated that, but he is continuing to fight his corner and say, uh, "I got to pay this off." Essentially, and I need my my loyal listeners, of whom unfortunately there are so many out there who will throw him money and the truthers, as they call themselves, who continue to this day to believe that this thing never happened. But uh, it did happen. It was horrific, and people have suffered horribly as a result of what happened there, and as a result of what he's been saying ever since. And Brianna, the grifter is at it again because no sooner has he have been hit with this bill, but he's actually online trying to rally people to give him money. Now, he's declared bankrupt, so he's just going to keep whatever money he gets rather than actually using it to fight the judgment, as he claims. Oh, yeah, and you've still got to remember that he got was went through a divorce proceedings in 2017. There was a website, his, his wife, ex-wife made, made a website called Divorce Wars, and it's really insightful. Go in and have a look in that. Um, so he's got that legal action as well pending against him. Now, he did make millions off selling brone bath. Sorry, brone, brone bath? No. Bone broth. There you go. Got it at the end. And all kinds of weird and wonderful supplements that would, you know, make you hypermasculine. And, you know, like he talks about fluoride turning the frogs gay. But basically, his supplements will save you from that. Um, so he made a lot of money on that. But no one knows where it goes. Has he screwed it away? Will he actually have to, you know, fulfill the reparations to these parents? Will they be able to find the money in time? I love that the case maybe spectacularly had the biggest own goal in legal history which is when his legal team accidentally sent the the uh, lawyers for these parents the full record of his texts and phone activity for two years. So he had on the stand said that he didn't know about the Sandy Hook emails and he couldn't find them he didn't know where they were and then there was his legal team sending them all to the other side and now his ex-wife is looking for those as well to make further claims on child support so it's going to be a bad time for Alex Jones so Alex Jones is one of these people who shows I'm not going to be cancelled although he's unfortunately everywhere and this whole thing of so-called cancel culture comes up quite regularly these days let's hear a little bit though of Graham Norton speaking at the Cheltenham Book Festival with Marielle Frostrop about the whole issue of cancel culture you read a lot of articles and papers by people complaining about cancel culture and you think in what world are you cancelled? I'm reading your article <laughs> in a newspaper or you're doing interviews about how terrible it is to be cancelled or, you know, so I think the word is the wrong word. I think uh, the word should be accountability. You know, I think, you know, John Cleese has been very public recently about complaining about what you've got to say. And I just think it's, it must be, and it must be very hard to be a man of a certain age 
who's been able to say whatever he liked for years, and now suddenly there's some accountability. There, you know, it's 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 free speech, but not consequence free. And so, you know, I'm aware but, but of saying. Aren't you, aren't you aware mean- when you when you do so, like I'm aware of I- the things I say. That's an interesting point. I wish one of you takes it up that there are consequences for free speech. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's one of those situations where, like, it's a very eloquent, nuanced, reasonable response to a question he's been asked, and all he's saying is, uh, own it, accept some responsibility for what you've said and how you've hurt people. Is that too much to ask? And the example is the litany of people who've allegedly been cancelled, who continue to have broadcasting jobs or, you know, columns in The Spectator, etc. you just got to find yourself a new, more problematic sense of friends, essentially, is what happens there. I usually like to preface things by saying, I know you're not allowed to say this, but I say it anyway, and they say it, and it actually isn't shocking because it's said by many people regularly. Yeah, like you are, al- I mean, within the parameters of the law, that like, you know, don't defame anyone, you are allowed to say what you want, but I'm also allowed to call you a knob for saying it. <laughs> and that is my definition of free speech, right? And you can say what you want, but you do have to be met with criticism. And it's odd because the people who are yelling loudest, people who are constantly complaining about cancel culture tend to be the loudest voices and they're being platformed. You know, Alex Jones always whinged about being deplatformed and he was eventually off, you know, his mainstream, you know, YouTube and Twitter. But these people, are on, like, John Cleese was making this point on the BBC, talking about how he would get cancelled and he would get censored on the BBC but he's talking on the bloody BBC and my favourite part of this was when he was like oh, if if the BBC came to me I would turn them down. I was like, but there's no danger of that because the BBC hasn't come to you. You're safe, John. Well, the BBC did actually give him a sitcom about three or four years ago and does put him on to various... And it's not like you're, we're short of places where we hear John Cleese. I heard a podcast interview with James O'Brien, for example, yeah. with him recently. It's not like anyone's trying to silence John he's Cleese. He's also, yeah, he's also the new poster boy for GB News, which is like a hell of a thing. But I mean, just back on the Norton thing for a second, because ultimately he was making the point that, first of all, he's been asked a question during an interview, which people seem to forget sometimes. They think celebrities just mouth off. But they've been asked a question and they give an honest answer. He was also saying that, look, I'm not an expert on this. You should probably talk to a psychologist or as you know, an anthropologist or something. But since you've asked the question, here's my answer. And he also made the point that I, you know, I'm not looking to take down John Cleese, for example. You know, I'm not looking to blast the guy or take aim at him. But sure enough, I'm sure that'll be what people say. And I'm telling you, errors after this was broadcast, this the headlines on the Daily Mail and beyond was. Graham Norton takes aim at John Cleese. Graham Norton blasts John Cleese. Unfortunately, it's a, it's, a, it's a race to the bottom. It's a snake eating its own tail. And the points he was making were proved immediately. And they'll continue to be. Okay, I'm almost reluctant to come to this because I think that maybe we've had too much discussion on this during the week. But I would like to hear both of you, your views on the controversy in relation to the Irish women's football team and the singing of a song as part of their post-match celebrations and qualifying for the World Cup. When Brianna, they'll be going to Australia and New Zealand. Um, What did you make as somebody living here from Australia of all of the fuss? I mean, it's a song that you hear in pubs. It's, it's not. A, it's not what I would consider. Well, I don't think it is considered in the popular consciousness as an IRA song. Do you think the people who sing it often have no idea what it actually might mean? I think potentially younger generations of people, and I'm really loath to accept this explanation because I get really like when you see political commenters commentators talking about, you know, young people are only voting for Sinn Fein because they don't understand what it was like in the Troubles, and it's like no, young people are going to vote for anyone who gives them a house. They'd vote for the ghost of Oliver Cromwell if it meant housing. Do you know what I mean at this stage? But I don't think you know. I think there is a contingency of people who maybe don't really fully understand chanting, you know, the IRA chorus bit, what that means to families of victims, what that means to families who've lost, you know, people in the troubles. But I don't think that 
it was the cause for panic that it was. I think it's a bit of ignorance on and like an Irish phobia on the English side. You know, you see this in Indigenous communities when they come out and make strong statements or have songs or plays about the violence of being colonised. You get a kind of reaction in very conservative elements of the colonial culture. Like that, sorry, there are subjugated people. They're going to sing songs against you. End of. Yeah, I should say, as a, as a Drogheda native, I'm not entirely certain that the ghost of Oliver Cromwell would poll too well <laughs> in my locality, but at the same time, what I will say... If he promised houses? Oh, I mean, like, it, don't don't ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> a lapsed Drogheda boy over here, defending a town I almost never do. But uh, anyway, essentially on the subject, yeah, look, listen, it has dragged on a bit, and it's a shame because it has taken the gloss off an incredible thing, and also incredible post-match scenes and incredible scenes during the match between Amber Barrett and Vera Paul. You saw incredible, incredible things happen there, but of course the story became this kind of more tainted version. I will say I do have a bit of a problem with the kind of memification of the of the IRA, but at the same time, if you look at Irish Twitter this week for example, like, you know, the ironic thing about Sky Sports News presenter Rob Wooden saying that the Irish uh, women's team need an education uh, if you look, look, looked at Irish Twitter this week for the last 48 hours or 72 hours, you've seen an education, you've seen an awful lot of people speak about their individual experiences and how horrific it would be for a British journalist to say to an Irish person you need an education. And ultimately, you know if I think, you know, it can be a bit irony and in my opinion, was it the smartest thing to put on Instagram Live? It's probably easier to quote-unquote not do it. At the same time, like, do I have the right to tell an Irish person don't sing that song? I don't think I do, increasingly so. And, and on the Sky Sports News thing, which of course was a huge, huge thing that everyone was covering for the last two days, it was a shocking thing to say. But it wasn't surprising, was it? Because it's like, as an Irish person, you're supposed to apologise to British people for what they've done to us, which makes no sense whatsoever. And again... This is supposed to be a feel-good story in terms of them winning that match in the week that was, particularly for Amber Barrett and her poignant gesture, and we were all on board, and it was amazing, and that shouldn't be forgotten. Uh, ultimately, these things... I mean, look, the Wolf Tones are back on top of the charts. Like, I mean, good for them as well. You know, I, I think ultimately the pieces will fall where they need to. I hope that people who needed to get a lesson got a lesson. I don't think the Irish team need a lesson, but at the same time, they have to they have to come out, come out and say, look, we're a professional organisation, we apologise, even if... In fairness, the way that bit, they apologised yeah. was an example to many others. I mean, there was no, you know, if you're offended, we're sorry type stuff. Vera Paul came out and said, look, this was wrong, it shouldn't have happened. And it's not because it came out in video, it shouldn't have happened in the, in the dressing room anyway, even if it hadn't. And the players were incredibly articulate in the way that they came out and said, look, we messed up, we're sorry, we're wrong. I mean, must move on. The post-match interviews. I mean, I, I, I did sports interview. I did covered sports for years in in Australia. You know, uh, I, I thought <laughs> in, you hated sports. Yeah, interviewing <laughs> rugby league and rugby union players. I had to do everything. That's how you started off. You did every round, right? I did horse racing too, and uh, so you interview these 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 male players, and it'd be like, yeah, full credit to the boys. Game of two halves. Game one hundred and ten percent. These women were so articulate, and they're, they're just a dream for a journalist doing a post-match interview. And I can't wait to see more of them. I can't wait to welcome them to a. Australia. I hope they have the best time out there. Thank you very much, Brianna Parkins and Dave Hanratty. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4 30.